Thank you, Rob. Good morning. Scott Grant here, checking in, pastor, elder, preacher this morning. So C.S. Lewis tells a story, uh, before he came to faith, of standing beside this flowering red currant bush on a beautiful, sunny afternoon. And at that point, he was overcome with some sense of desire that he couldn't quite understand, that it came to him without warning. He said, it came came to him as if from a depth, not of years, but of centuries. It is difficult to find words strong enough for the sensation which came over me. It was a sensation of desire, but desire for what? And before I knew what I desired, the desire itself was gone. The whole glimpse withdrawn. The world turned commonplace again, or only stirred by a longing for the longing that had just ceased, a longing for the longing that had ceased. It had taken only a moment of time, and in a certain sense, everything else that had ever happened to me was insignificant in comparison. Wow. Have you, have you ever had a moment like that? Maybe not that strong and that powerful, but Have you ever had a moment in which you just felt something and you didn't know where it was coming from and you had some sense of, I I want something, I desire, I feel something, I don't even know what it is, but but I want. So the question to begin with this morning is, what do you do with desire? We all have desire. We are humans. God has made us with desire. What do you do with desire? So we are in the book of the covenant in the book of Exodus today. So this is a particular section, covers two chapters and parts of two others, and the book of the covenant is an outworking of the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, which we heard from last week. So these are, this contains ordinances that specifically apply the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, to specific situations. Now here's the structure for the overall book of the covenant, which is really interesting. So it begins with worship and it ends with worship, and in the middle are these 42 ordinances. So what this is telling us is that obedience to the Lord, which concerns loving other people, begins and ends with worship. This makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you look at the ordinances, the 42 ordinances, and by the way, we're not going to be looking at them this morning. Uh, I think uh, you probably might not want to hear me expound on the law of the goring ox, or maybe you might want to hear me expound on that. What should I do if your ox gores my ox? I'm not going to be talking about that this morning. But if you look at the ordinances, you're going to see that what God cares about is people. That's what he cares about. And especially in light of comparing the book of the covenant to other ancient codes, you see that The the dignity that is given to humans is way above that which is given to humans in other ancient codes. And uh, so we have a lot to learn from the ordinances about what God cares about. But as we worship God, as we come to God, we understand who he is more and more. We draw near to him. We connect with him. We see who he is. We see what he cares about. And then we enter into the world to care about people, love God, love people. It makes sense. So loving others begins and ends with worship. And it does so literally in our text. So what we're going to do this morning is look at the prologue and the epilogue of the book of the covenant. In fact, certain aspects of that. So first of all, then let's look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 to 25. 
And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to, uh, to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. There's the prohibition against idolatry. Here's the prescription for worship. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. So the first thing we see about worship here is the building of these altars. And when the Lord commands the people to build altars, what he's commanding them to do is to do what the patriarchs did. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob built these altars. When God showed up in their lives and when God made promises, they commemorated this event by building an altar. So these then are altars of remembrance. Now the grammar here is a little bit difficult, but essentially it goes like this. God shows up and he wants his name to, rem to be remembered. He causes his name to be rem remembered. He blesses Israel. And when he does so, he wants them to build an altar and to make sacrifices on it. But then these altars th then are there for them to look at and behold in the future. So these, these are altars of remembrance by which the Israelites can remember the great thing that God has done, how God showed up for them in the wilderness. Now, when God showed up in the lives of the patriarchs and the, and the patriarchs built these altars, these appearances by God changed the course of their lives. In fact, these appearances changed the course of history. Now, Moses has recently revived this tradition. You might remember, if you were with us a few weeks ago, that uh, the Lord showed up in this place called Rephidim in a powerful way, and then, the, then Moses built an altar of remembrance to remember what God had done there, and he named it, the Lord is my banner. So Moses has revived this, this old tradition, and now the Lord wants the people to continue building these altars when he shows up and when he reveals himself to them. Now, he wants these to be simple altars of earth or of uncut stones, and to, to do more than that would be to profane these altars. And uh, the, the narrator doesn't go into details about how these altars would be profaned if you used your tool to cut these stones. But uh, the, the essence of it is that the Lord wants these to be simple altars that can be constructed very quickly in response to his appearances. Now, there's gonna be different instructions later concerning the building of the altar for the tabernacle. That's to be made of acacia wood and to be overlaid with bronze. That's a different kind of altar for a different purpose, for more regular worship. These altars are simple altars to recognize God's appearances and you never know when God is gonna show up. So when I visited the Holy Land years ago, it was a very powerful experience, but one of the disappointing things when you get there, at least for me, was that where God showed up and made these divine appearances, or where Jesus showed up, there's these ornate, big, huge churches that are covering the supposed spots where Jesus walked or where God showed up. So these were not exactly worshipful experiences for me. You go into these dark places and they say, this is where this happened, and there's a big line to get in. For example, the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, big, huge, dark church. You get in a big, long line, and you, and, you, and you wait, and you get to the spot, and there's this little star, and they say, this is the exact spot where Jesus was born. 
Well, probably not. And uh, to be honest with you, it was not exactly a worshipful experience for me. However, outside the Church of the Nativity, I stood and I scanned the hillsides and I imagined what it must have been like for certain shepherds who were keeping watch over their sheep by night. That was a worshipful experience for me. So I would have preferred that if they just made simple monuments. Here's where it happened, and then you can imagine the scene, what it was like. Well, God shows up in our lives, just like he showed up in the lives of the patriarchs and in the lives of the people in the wilderness. And when he shows up in my life, no matter how many times he has done it, it always surprises me. It always takes me by surprise. Sometimes he shows up in obvious ways. Sometimes he shows up in subtle ways that are more artistic. But oftentimes he shows up, and when he does, it takes me by surprise. Maybe that's your experience as well. So what do you do when he shows up, when you really feel like you've had some kind of encounter with the Lord? It might help to build an altar, an altar of remembrance. Now, if you want to go ahead and build an altar of uncut stones and earth, you can go ahead and do that, but there are many ways to do this. There are many ways to remember how God has shown up in your life. So, uh, and when you do this, this actually has, this, this becomes part of you. The experience becomes part of you when you do something to remember it. Sometimes you have something tangible to remember it by. And then also, once you build an altar, so to speak, uh, it, that sort of experience with the Lord becomes accessible, more accessible. You can draw on that in the future. The very, the very experience, of course, shapes you, but then the building of an altar to remember that experience can shape you as well. So call this reactive worship. You react to what God has done, and you build an altar. How do you do that? How do you build an altar? Well, one of the ways is to tell people about your experience. What has God done? How has God shown up? Tell someone, tell your small group. In a few minutes, we're gonna have the opportunity in the whole church to share how God has shown up in your life. Tell someone, and when you tell someone, when you speak, that's an act of remembrance. It becomes more part of you when you tell someone about that experience. Writing about it can be a form of building an altar. You can journal about it, you can write a poem about it, when God shows up in my life, I like to write a story about it. And uh, I, sometimes when I'm writing about it, I realize that God has shown up in some way, but I don't really understand the, the meaning of it. And then as I try to find these words to put, to, 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 find, to find these words to describe this event, then I sort of, I connect with the Lord. I understand more about what he is doing in my life. And then I post it on this blog in the hopes that I can encourage others as well. And if you want to get access to that, just friend me on Facebook and those blogs uh, entries are all over the place on, um, on this particular Facebook page. Uh, taking photos can be a way of building an altar. As long as you, in the moment, you are not just constantly taking photos so that you don't even know the moment, right? So that happens to some people. Now with these, these cameras and these phones that people have, it's just click, 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 the moment's gone and, and you never really experience the moment. However, it can be a helpful thing to take a photo of something that is worth remembering so then you can go back to it and look at it and say, oh, yes, this is where God showed up. I remember this now. I can draw upon this. I can draw upon the faithfulness of the Lord based on this photo that I'm looking at. Or there are photo books that people make that chronicle days or seasons. For example, 
When um, I've gone to India and I've returned to India, then Atul, the leader of the trip, has made a photo book of the trip so that all the people who went on it can look at, look at it and see what the Lord has done. And by the way, our recent India trip, the missions team has just returned, or at least part of them have returned, but some of them are still overseas. I talked to a couple people earlier in the first service and they had a great time great ministry, serving a, a lot of poor people who have no access to care. But as they were gone, I was praying for them every day and I was leafing through these books. And here's, a, here's an example of one of the books that a tool put together, uh, Untouchable Smiles. And uh, what we do when we go to India is we minister to the Dalits. And as I leafed through these uh, books, as I was praying for the India team, and you can see the inside shot, one of the inside shots as well, I was, I was reminded of my experience there, and I was reminded and I reconnected with the whole idea of, of our, and watched our people serving, our medical people serving people who have no access to care. I remembered teaching pastors, some of whom traveled days in order to be with us, to hear the word of God. I remembered preaching in churches to spiritually thirsty people, and I, re, and I remembered these trips are worth doing. Looking at this photo book sort of reconnected me with and recentered me on what matters. And I'm looking at this photo book and I say, I want to live a life that's worthy of a photo book, so to speak, right? To follow the Lord into difficult places, to, to, to go wherever the Lord calls me to go, to serve people, to love people. Yeah, that's the way to live. And so this is a, a, something of an altar of remembrance for me. I've got four or five of these that a tool has put together. They're really great things. Years ago, I used to meet with a friend in downtown Palo Alto in a coffee shop once a week. And on one particular day, we were both going through some difficult things. And uh, we were meeting for quite some time, so long, in fact, that Don had to get, get up and go relieve himself. And while he did, I was overcome with this feeling that what he was going through, God was in it and God was gonna do something great in it. So what I did while he was away is I took this napkin and I wrote on it. And I said, it's gonna work. I put my name to it, I put the date on it. I said, put a PS, I don't know how it's gonna work. And I put that napkin in front of his seat so when he came back, that napkin was waiting for him. Well, we're going on, we're talking, and I have to get up and do the same thing. And when I come back, well, guess what? A napkin is waiting for me. <laughs> the exact same message, and here it is. And... Uh, I have that napkin to this day. And you can see it's been pinned up in a few places through the years so that I can look at it through the years. It's gonna work. Don McDougall, 1129-1995. Cafe Verona, which doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> P.S. I don't know how it's gonna work. Every once in a while, I look at this napkin. I'm going through difficulty. It's gonna work? Yeah, it's gonna work. You know what? If you believe in Jesus Christ and you're going through difficulty right now, it's gonna work. P.S. I don't know how it's gonna work, <laughs> but it's gonna work. So build an altar, not to sort of feel what you used to feel, but to remember what you felt like, 
to remember how God showed up, and to reconnect and recenter your life on God, who is going to continue to show up, not in the same way, but in different ways, as you need it. Build altars of remembrance. This is what David did when he wrote Psalms. He had this experience of the Lord, and then he wrote about those experiences. Look at uh, Psalm 43, verses five and six. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. One day, of course, God really showed up. I mean, he really showed up. How do we remember that with this. Very simple. It's a cross. As you come into our worship center, as you look up, you see a cross. As you leave our worship center, as you look up, you see what it means. For you are not your own, you are bought with a price. So now, having looked at the prologue, let's look at the epilogue. And we find that in Exodus chapter 23, beginning at verse 13. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. That's the prohibition against idolatry. Here's the prescription for worship, although this is a different prescription than what we heard in the prologue. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year, shall all your males appear before the Lord God. So these are three agricultural feasts that commemorate God's provision for the people. These are three harvest festivals that happen three times during the year. And these are uh, festivals that are rhythmic. So this is rhythmic worship so that you go three times a year. Earlier you, we saw that they're reacting to whatever God is doing in the moment, building an altar. This time, now they are going forward to worship the Lord three times a year, making pilgrimages to do so. Now, these, uh, these, these festivals were harvest festivals keyed to the agricultural year, but also other events concerning God's provision were attached to these particular festivals. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread also became the Feast of Pentecost, and it commemorates also, in addition to God's provision in the harvest, also commemorates God's provision in, ex in the Exodus. And we see that even in this text. Already they are celebrating the Exodus with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of the Harvest, later God's provision of the law was attached to this. So they celebrated God's provision of the law. The Feast of Ingathering also became called the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. This commemorated God's provision for them in the wilderness. So three feasts, worship three times a year, come to Jerusalem, as it turns out, three times a year to worship the Lord. So 
So are we supposed to do that today? No, we're not. The new covenant does not prescribe the celebration of these feasts. And if it did, how would we go about doing this? You want to go, go to Jerusalem three times a year, make sacrifices at the temple. The temple no longer exists. Obviously, this is not what God expects of us today. This was for them at that particular time once they lived in the land. But for us, the new covenant does not do away with the rhythms of life. We are rhythmic creatures and we live in a rhythmic world. There is daytime and there is nighttime. We wake up, we go to sleep. There are weeks, there are months, there are years, there are seasons. We live in a rhythmic world and we are rhythmic creatures. So we then can worship and should worship to a certain extent rhythmically. Call this proactive worship. Earlier, we saw this was reactive worship. This is proactive worship in which you go to some place and you worship. So this whole idea of reactive worship and proactive worship, these are mutually reinforcing so that you experience the Lord in both ways and in experiencing the Lord in these particular ways encourages you to experience the Lord in all sorts of ways. Mutually reinforcing approaches to worship. So for example, David could have this powerful experience of the Lord in a cave and write psalms about it, but he also longed to go to Jerusalem. He also longed to worship with the others in the feasts. And we read this in Psalm 42, verse four. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So they worshiped rhythmically. We too should worship rhythmically. So at PBC, we have a certain rhythm, don't we? We come here on Sundays, and then when you look at the whole year, there's a there's Advent, there's Christmas, there's Holy Week, there's Good Friday, there's Easter, there's the women's retreat, there's the men's retreat, there's the fall retreat, there's Camp PBC. There's lots of other things that we do on a regular basis around here. It's part of our rhythm of worship. So we've been doing this at PBC for 75 years now. We're gonna be celebrating in September our 75th anniversary. Now, between Christmas and New Year's around here, there were times when I was the only one on the entire campus. People were taking their vacation between Christmas and New Year's. I took it other times, so I was, I was here. It was a little bit of an eerie experience because this place is just bustling with life so much of the time. I got this idea uh, during one of these swaths of time to come over here to the worship center, which was absolutely empty, of course, and I spent an hour in here walking around and praying it was a very worshipful experience. And I, I, I felt like I was connecting with 75 years worth of people who have been coming to Peninsula Bible Church to worship week in and week out, thousands, millions of people. And I was the only one here, but somehow I was sensing that they were here as well. We've been worshiping rhythmically for 75 years. It's an important aspect to worship, to worship rhythmically. So find your rhythm. Find your rhythm. This could be different for everyone. I think Sunday morning is a good place to start. Coming here every Sunday, that's a good place to start. But build other things into your rhythm as well. So for example, as many of you know, I talk about it probably too much 
I take these personal retreats, two a year, once in the winter and then once in the summer. I go to the same places. And if I've talked about it too much, it's because these retreats have proved invaluable to me. I'm about to go on my winter retreat to Point Reyes in a couple weeks, and I can already taste the Lord. These retreats give me something to look forward to. I know it's going to be hard in certain aspects, but I know God's going to show up as well. So what you need to do to build into your rhythm is build in at least something that you have to look forward to so that no matter how, how hard or how difficult life is, there's something to look forward to in your rhythm. I also take two fishing trips a year with my brothers. Now, you might not think this is worship, but I'm out in creation. We go on a trip in the spring, we go on a trip in the fall, and I'm, I'm in touch with the rhythms of creation and the trout and the... And, 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 and what God has done in creation and spring and fall, and I'm, I smell it, and I, and I hear it, and I feel it, and I go to the trout stream, and it's a worshipful experience for me, and I always look forward to it. It's in my rhythm. So small group, find a small group. That's an important thing. Uh, find time alone with the Lord. That's an important thing. Find time alone with the Word. That's an important thing. So find your own rhythm and find what works for you. Ruth Barton says this, the kingdom of God is here now if we are willing to arrange our life to embrace it. The only question, it seems, is how bad do you want it? That's a good question. How bad do you want the kingdom of God? Or consider this, if you answer the question, I'm not sure I want it bad enough, do you want to want it bad enough? Start somewhere and arrange your life so that you can embrace the kingdom of God. And to do so, there has to be some kind of rhythm. It can't just be, hey, when God shows up, I'm going to worship. You have to worship proactively as well. And you have to find a, rid a rhythm. You have to arrange your life according to finding a rhythm. Now, if building altars sends us back to Genesis and the patriarchs, then worshiping rhythmically according to the feasts sends us forward to the Gospel of John. Because what you see Jesus doing with the feasts is he uses them as platforms to teach about himself. Multiple times in the Gospel of John, you see Jesus using the feasts as opportunities to tell people about himself. So the reality of the feast is they were just waiting for Jesus to come and tell them what the feasts were all about, and the feasts are all about him. So when you get to John chapter 7, Jesus is celebrating one of the feasts. It's the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, what does that commemorate? It commemorates God's provision for the people in the wilderness. Now, one of the ceremonies that developed by the time Jesus came along was this. The high priest would take this golden pitcher. He would go to a pool in Jerusalem. He would fill that, he would fill that pitcher with water, and he would lead a procession to the temple, and on the altar there, he would pour out that pitcher. That ceremony commemorated God's provision of water for the people in the wilderness, and we have looked at that in the book of Exodus. We have seen how God provided water for the people in the wilderness. So Jesus comes to the feast, the feast of booths. 
And then he says this famously in John chapter 7. And I hope it helps you to understand something of the background of the Feast of Booths when you hear Jesus say this in John chapter 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The feast was just waiting for Jesus to say this, to talk about not physical water, but living water, what he's going to provide for anyone who is spiritually thirsty, if anyone will come to him, he will address that thirst. So what do you do with desire? What do you do with spiritual thirst? What does Jesus tell us? It's very simple. Come to him. Why should you come to him? Where else are you really going to go when you think about it? Netflix? You've tried a lot of things already, haven't you? What's it done for you? Maybe something for a little while. Come to Jesus because he's the best alternative. So how do you come to Jesus? Answer, any way you can. But our text today gives us two approaches. Come to Jesus when he does something. Build an altar. And then come to Jesus in rhythm. Come to Jesus proactively to worship him. So I'm going to give you an assignment today, and I've done this before. I do this every once in a while. I feel like I need to give you a little bit of homework. And don't panic, because you know if you've been here before, these are all very easy assignments. The assignment goes like this. This week, for 10 minutes, get by yourself. Have nothing else with you. Get the phone far away from you. Get anything else to read or anything else to do far away from you. And just feel what you feel for 10 minutes. And I promise you, if you commit yourself to doing nothing, you will feel something. You will feel the urge to do something. I'm telling you, resist that urge. Resist that urge to do anything, except do this. Come to Jesus. How do you do that? Use your imagination. Imagine that you are coming to Jesus with that thirst that you feel. And just see what he does. See what happens. 10 minutes. That's all I'm asking you for. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you as a parched land. Would you please stand? Lord Jesus, we come to you, and we come to you right now. There are multiple ways to do this. One of the ways to do this is to come to you right now and sing a song to you. So we worship you, Jesus, and as we do so, we come to you. Jesus, you are worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. Jesus, we live for you, and now we come to you. It's in your name we pray, amen.